Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Today on Power Hour, we're going to talk again about electricity, particularly the state of American electricity. We had an episode a month or two ago with Travis Fisher, who works at the Institute for Energy Research, um, and we learned a lot of great stuff about electricity. But in general, I think on Power Hour, that's one subject that we haven't covered enough, or at least that we can cover a lot more. We focused a lot on the fuels that create electricity, um, but not as much on the electricity itself, uh, how it's distributed, um, who's doing a good job on it, who's doing a bad job on it, etc. So today, uh, we're fortunate enough to have Professor Andrew Cleet uh, of Penn State University, who's a professor of energy and environmental economics, and he is going to answer a lot of questions that I have um, and that I'll have on your behalf on electricity. So stick around, you'll get a lot of information, and I'll talk to you on the other side. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. All right, we are joined by Professor Andrew Cleet of Penn State University. Andrew, welcome to Power Hour. Great to be here, Alex. Thanks. So since you're an expert on um, a lot of issues in electricity, I thought we'd take that opportunity to discuss the general state uh, of American electricity. So let me just ask you from the outset, what do you think, if you can answer such a broad question, um, how are things going in terms of what, what, what um, we can look forward to with our grid and our supply of cheap, plentiful, reliable electricity? Well, I don't know about cheap, plentiful electricity. Um, currently, in this part of the country, in Pennsylvania, where I am, the price of natural gas is very low, and it's lower across the country, and so that's causing the price of uh, electricity to go down. The marginal cost in electricity are generally by mar marginal production is by natural gas plants. And so what we're seeing here in Pennsylvania and other places in the country are new sources of natural gas, which we expect to have bring about lower natural gas prices for, say, the next 30 years. Although, as you know, expert uh, Alex, that's always conjecture. Um, interesting. Now, if, if we look at the, the country as a whole, I mean, I mentioned cheap, plentiful, and reliable. Where is electricity cheapest and where is it most expensive? Well, it's cheapest in the Tennessee Valley. The Tennessee Valley Authority has government-subsidized hydropower, and so they have the cheapest electricity. Where is it the most expensive? Hmm. It's oftentimes in California because they have very strict environmental regulations, so it's very difficult to build a power plant in California. So, in fact, you see that uh, the new power plants for California are going up in Arizona and Nevada. Um, well, let's, let's go to the TVA, then. It's interesting, as you mentioned, they have the cheapest, but also that it's, it's subsidized. How subsidized is the hydropower there, and how do those, subsidize, how do those subsidies work? Well, how subsidized they are is a 
topic of great uh, controversy. How the substitutes work is that over time, the TVA has gotten very low interest loans from the federal government and built these dams, which are very long standing. But the other thing to recognize is that hydropower is always going to be the cheapest source of power, at least usually, Bill. And so they have uh, excellent sites in the Tennessee Valley for hydropower. Now, one of the problems you have is they're just, uh, you know, as we say, you're running out of rivers to dam. There just aren't a lot of opportunities to do that anymore. So you can replicate that. So now what you see is a lot of building of natural gas facilities. Um, I mean, we're running out of, of rivers, but I mean, there's also a lot of environmentalist opposition uh, to hydropower. I mean, for instance, the Sierra Club is very, very proud of its record of shutting down dams. How, like, how much latent capacity is there, if you know, um, of, of dams that could be created but that are, are stopped or have been shut down by environmentalists? I, I'm not sure there's very much left. I mean, what you had historically until about 20 years ago is that the Army Corps of Engineers carrying out its bureaucratic mansion to do more things kept damming more and more rivers and were damming, were putting up dams with government subsidies that uh, really couldn't pass any kind of cost-benefit analysis. So, um, and that stopped about 20 years ago because of environmental groups like the Sierra Club and other things. So I'm not sure how much more potential there is in the United States for that. Um, so let's let's go to the the grid. Just uh, we've done other episodes on electricity, but just as a refresher for some listeners and those who haven't um, uh, heard those episodes for the first time, how does how do we like what what are the core elements in us getting electricity? Because a lot of people I talk to just real like if they talk about an electric car, they just think electricity is something that comes from the wall. Well, electricity is. I mean, is a very complicated good. It's fascinating from an economic point of view. Uh, the chief problem is electricity has to flow across a grid of wires, but it also flows, basically, you can't direct electricity. It flows according to something called Kirchhoff's laws, which are basically, it flows, oh, it's, it flows kind of like water. Uh, is the closest representation. Oh, that's hard. But you generate electricity, and, and, and in any place in the United States, you, when you generate electricity, you're generating from a lot of sources. You burn natural gas, you burn coal, some places you burn oil, you have nuclear reactors, you have nowadays, you have more renewable energy, and that flows into the transmission grid. The transmission grid is operated either by a regulated company in much of the country or by in restructured states like Pennsylvania by what's called a regional transmission organization, and that tells the transmission owners which lines to open up, which plants to operate, and things like that. And then it's delivered across the transmission lines to uh, substations and then sent to your home through a distribution system. But the electricity that's produced doesn't go it doesn't direct it. So you can't say, well, that plant over there is producing electricity for me. Rather, any plant throws its electricity into the grid or into the power pool, and then you draw your electricity out. And there's no direct connection. Um, so talk about that in, in a connection with this idea that it, it, unlike, say, the oil you put in your car, which can just sit there forever and is available on demand, the electricity doesn't just sit there. It's not stored. Right. Electricity is not at this point economically storable except for hydroelectric plants. And one of the nuances of electricity grids is that supply has to be very close to demand at all times because there's no storage. And so if, if, if the supply and demand go out of whack, then you have the system crash, and that's a very bad thing. And that's always one aspect of electricity that I just 
marvel at because it just seems if somebody said to me, hey, your job is to you know continuously change the supply of electricity to match demand, that just seems like just this unbelievable feat. What are what are the elements that allow people to do that? Well, I mean, in, in restructured areas, there's a market for that. It's called the regulation market, which is basically a market for standby power, either to reduce or, re- or increase your production of power. And the grid operators, with the help of sophisticated computer systems, um, are able to do that uh, with, with some challenge. This is a big difference in electricity grids over the last 40 years, is that because of the enhanced technology, you can now have larger and larger electricity grids. So the PJM grid, which is the grid here in the mid-Atlantic, you know, goes from Pennsylvania to Illinois to Virginia and south into North Carolina. And it's fairly large, much larger than it could have been 40 years ago. So what are the advantages and disadvantages of having a very large grid like that? Well, I think the advantages are is that uh, basically that this system operation and managing the grid, there are economies of scale in, in doing that. So you don't have to have, you know, historically the PJM grid is an amalgamation of, I believe, uh, 19 different grid operators. And so before you had 19 entities doing this basic work of system operation, and now you only have one. Um, but I mean, is is there any sort of danger of everyone being at the, I mean, 19 different sections then being at the mercy of the mistake of one? Well, in theory, yes. I mean, in practice, the systems work pretty well. Well, and that, I guess that raises the issue of, um, well, for one, what when it, when things don't work well, like when there's been big blackouts on the East Coast, what what are the usually the causes of blackouts? Well, most causes of blackouts are basically at the distribution level. That basically, for instance, a lightning bolt hits your substation, and then your neighborhood is out of power for a few hours. The only large systematic uh, uh, blackout we've had here in the eastern United States in the last 20 years has been the 2003 blackout, which blacked out much of Ohio, Ontario, and New York State. And that happened, oddly enough, because there was an electric utility in Ohio that didn't trim the trees near the power lines. And so on a hot day, the power lines actually sagged into the trees and shorted out the line and caused a, a gigantic problem. That was a, an error that really didn't have anything to do with system or with, with the regional transmission organizations or system operations. Basically, one firm screwed up. Um, what about California at the turn of the century? Because you had you know, certain dynamics of, of how those markets were uh, intervened with by the government, but also uh, here in California, we have, I would say, uh, very anti-energy development uh, policies. What's the relative contribu- what were the relative contributions well, of those? The California had a so-called restructuring system that was deeply flawed in many ways, and so it allowed – what happened was is there was a shortage of power, the price went up, and then the distribution companies weren't allowed to charge the price they were paying for electricity. And so they basically went bankrupt, and then no one would sell them electricity because it's, a lot of people wouldn't sell them electricity because, you know, why should I sell you electricity if I know you're not going to pay me? And so the system ran short of power. But that was clearly a political regulatory problem that was brought about by bad regulation, bad policy. So was there any element to it of just, um, you know, California anti-development? policies? Well, it didn't hurt, didn't help that 
a lot of the energy for California comes from out of state. And, you know, what a number of things happened. It was it, uh, econo economists, it's kind of the perfect storm. But a lot of the hydro, California gets a lot of hydropower from the Northwest. And there was a, a long-term drought in the Northwest. And then there's a lot of natural gas supply into California that comes through a pipeline that had a fire. And, you know, you can't build a new pipeline instantaneously. Um, but California has very challenging environmental regulations because you simply can't build new things. So it's hard to build new transmission lines, new pipelines, new generation, things like that. And it's difficult to substitute for that. Elaborate on what it means that you can't build new things, which is, in my mind, pretty much the biggest indictment uh, of a set of laws. Um, well, California has made it very challenging. I mean, I think that the, for whatever environmental concerns, you know, I, I don't live in California, Alex, you do. And so uh, I have to respect the decision of the people of California, but it, it puts certain tensions on the system. In particular, you know, my point of view is that you have to understand that you can be concerned about environment, but you have to understand that these things come with cost. And California, that means it's going to cost you more and more for electricity. But I mean, in practice, what are some of the specific types of policies that say stop you from building a natural gas plant where you could in, say, Texas? Well, I have to get permission to do so from a variety of state authorities, and they're very reluctant to do it. Um, I need, I got to get the natural gas, so I got to get it from a pipeline. That's hard enough. Then I have to have the right to burn it, and all that requires, I believe, state and local. Uh, approvals, and those are very difficult to get in California. Well, s staying on the, the topic of California, since in some ways California is a, a leader um, in America, although you know, given our budget and electricity prices, I, I don't think we should be seen as a leader in anything besides weather quality. Um, what is the how did the renewable mandates affect things? Because we have you know we have these escalating mandates of you have to use. X, Y, you know, larger amounts of so-called renewable energy, you know, with a real emphasis on, on solar and wind. And those are obviously intermittent sources of electricity. And it just seems at some point those are, I mean, they're obviously much more expensive now, but at some point the intermittency uh, would seem to be a threat to the grid. Well, I mean, the renewable mandates came about in, in many states. I think it was a desire on the part of legislators to do something about uh, global, about climate change and carbon emissions in the face of the federal government not taking any action. Now, uh, carbon emissions, to the extent they represent a problem, are a global problem, not a state problem. And so, for instance, even the state of California, if it reduces its carbon emissions by a substantial amount, really isn't going to do anything to address this problem. Now, so what it's called for is a variety of other energies, but in large part wind energy, and then in California, you see a lot of solar energy. Now, solar energy, the price of solar energy has come down a lot, but it's still very, very expensive. And also, if you have a system with a lot of solar energy, then, um, you know, what do you do on a cloudy day? Now, wind energy, we've got some, I have a, a study here on wind energy in Texas. And it turns out that the wind energy, if you can get the wind from several different geographic locations, it tends to balance it out. And while it causes increased costs for the system, at least at, a, at between 5 and 8% of the system demand, load, it's not that big a deal. But I think to impose a lot of, and by the way, that's just for Texas. It's always specific to where you are in, in the country because everybody's weather, especially wind patterns, are different. Um, so, and wind power is expensive. It's not as expensive as solar power. It's going to cost you money. 
Um, but it's solar power that I really worry about because of the intermittency problem and the cost. Yeah, that's I hadn't I hadn't thought of that where the the wind would be more likely to balance out. Where obviously the amount of sunlight in California at different parts is not going to be balanced between day and night uh, very well. But if we're then talking about something like five to eight percent, yeah, I get how you can compensate for that intermittency both through diversifying the wind sources and then just through um, you know cycling natural gas or whatever. But um, as you mentioned, it's a global problem and it's a well, allegedly alleged problem, but it's a global thing and it's one that allegedly demands massive, massive cuts in CO2 emissions, which in their mind, because they're anti-nuclear and anti-hydro a lot, means very large percentages. So you hear numbers like 50, 60, 70, 80%, and that would seem to really bring out the problems of intermittency on a network. Well, you have to understand there's only so much wind power. That is, not every place is good for wind. So, you know, here in Pennsylvania, there are a lot of wind, a lot of mountaintops that you can put gigantic wind towers on if you're not worried about the environmental effects. They're loud and people find them unsightly. Um, but there's a limit to how much you can do. Um, solar energy, in, in, in theory, there's no limit, but uh, the intermittency problem is very large. Um, so, I mean, what do you think of the the so-called solutions for the intermittency problem. People say, well, we're working on, you know, the next battery or the next capacitor, or we'll somehow, I guess, pump water up, you know, although I don't know where all that water is, is going to be. I mean, what's the state of those so-called uh, solutions? Because in many, you know, in many of these central plans for uh, so-called renewable networks, they're very confident about those issues. Well, we still seem to be a long way from economic battery power where you can store power and then put it back into the system. Um, sort of our estimates of the returns from battery power is that you get just a fraction of the investment. So it doesn't seem that we're there yet. You know, predicting future technological progress, Alex, I just don't know how to do that. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, I guess it's more that, uh, I mean, this is an issue in central planning in general. It's that, uh, you know, people like, uh, his name, uh, Michael Jacobson at, at Stanford, who's recently become very prominent in part because of, of Gasland 2, which featured him as the like world authority on the future of energy, will just say, well, I came up with a plan uh, where everything can be 100% renewable. And there are lots of assumptions about technologies that that we don't have. So I guess there, there's an, I, I don't mean you need to pr predict the future, but it seems like there's a, a huge amount of arbitrariness in other people claiming that they have predicted the future. Well, I, I don't know how they're going to predict the future. Uh, I think if we go back and look at predictions from 50 years ago about the future, uh, you know, some were probably correct, but I suspect most were wrong. I'm still looking for my flying car, and uh, it hasn't happened. Maybe, but I'm still looking forward to it. Maybe if California let us build things, we would build those instead of, you know, a lot more solar panels. Um, so, I mean, is there any... In terms of, let's say, California in the next uh, the next decade or two, is there any danger with like this thirty three percent level? I believe of of that causing blackouts. It just seems like a very large amount of intermittency. Uh, I I just presume that eventually the the state legislature will back off somewhat on that. Um, you know, a lot of legislatures will do once the costs become evident, and you're seeing that in Europe where this where the Spanish and the Germans have spent a lot of money on solar power and realized it's not very economical, and so they're reducing the subsidies. Well, so let's talk about that 
that trend globally? What what was the arc of the uh, Spanish experience? Well, I mean, they thought that solar power would be a relatively inexpensive way of reducing their carbon output, and they put a lot of money into it. And then the you know the Spanish economies had terrible time the last four years, and they just couldn't afford it. Um, and the Germans who've had a better economy are are starting to realize that. I mean, the Germans have have problems because they um, they're not building nuclear power; they're shutting down their nuclear power plants. So actually, they seem to be getting more of their electricity supply one from French nuclear plants, and two from more coal plants. Um, yeah, yeah, we've talked about that that trend on the show, which is just uh, so ironic. So if I mean, this, it's an interesting dynamic because the way that it's presented by politicians, particularly President Obama, is that when he'll cite, you know, Germany gets X percent of, uh, you know, their megawatt hours from solar, it's treated as this is the emerging technologies. This is, in effect, the iPhone at 10 or 20 percent market share ready to explode, uh, whereas it seems like once it has hit a certain market share, they're, they're pulling back. Well, I mean, they just ran out of money to subsidize it. That's all. But what, I mean, what is any element of it just the the technical difficulties of you know the more intermittency you're adding on the network, the more the more well, difficult. Well, at, at this stage, it's basically that the costs haven't come down fast enough to make it economically viable. And again, this comes to an issue. Solar advocates would say that the costs will come down soon. They've come down rapidly. They're still nowhere close to what economic to be economically viable. But you know, I don't know. You know, to me, the new technologies is pretty close to magic. I don't quite understand it. And, you know, I always say if somebody can wave their magic wand and make solar com- cost competitive with natural gas, that would be great. But I don't know how that's going to happen. Well, so, yeah, I mean, I, I respect the point a lot that it's it's unpredictable, but there are, I mean, there are known, you know, problems that, that solar has to solve. And often often I see cost comparisons between solar and other technologies. Well, they'll take it, well, this costs X per kilowatt hour and gas costs X per kilowatt hour. And obviously the solar's X is much Solar is more like 4x or something, but it doesn't seem like a fair comparison because one is a is an on-demand source of power and one is intermittent. So, and especially if you're talking about what's going to run the whole country, which is what they are with these uh, ultimate global warming solutions, it just seems like a, an apples to oranges comparison. Well, for me, in this part of the country, the real clean technology is natural gas because it's a whole lot. I mean, it's not perfectly clean but it's a whole lot cleaner than coal, which is what it replaces, and it's a lot cheaper. And so um, I think that's the way to go. And so and to some extent, uh, the opposition to natural gas drilling, which is stop natural gas drilling in New York State, is quite puzzling to me. Although even, I guess, from the global warming perspective, you still have a, I mean, coal is, well, how quickly is, is uh, coal growing worldwide? So even though it's declining as a percentage of American electricity, what's, what's the rate worldwide? Well, I don't know the exact rate, but it looks like coal output is pretty steady. It's going down in the United States, but we're shipping an awful lot of coal to China and some to India. Um, yes, yeah, so I just I just find it interesting the uh, the deviation between rhetoric and reality in terms of if you just read the political speeches, it would seem like global CO2 emissions are heading downward and these renewable so-called technologies are leading to increased prosperity and, and lower prices. And yet... That's not happening, and then the governments are well, the governments are pulling back. Carbon dioxide emissions in the United States are down for two reasons. One is we have a slow economic time, and so electricity electricity uh, usage is down, and also we have more more efficient uh, uh, demanders of electricity. 
and two were the replacement of coal by natural gas. The renewable effects don't seem to be very important in that. Um, how much? How much of that is because? I mean, so one I would imagine is just because of scale, but another one would just be the need for a backup and the need to say cycle up and down natural gas power to back up, say, a wind farm. Um, well, it's an interesting question. There are backup markets for electricity. And so actually, if you run what's called a peak generator, where you have low capital cost and high marginal cost, you can make a good portion of your income basically by being in reserve and being available to be called if there's a, if there's a shortage, say, if another plant goes down. So is that, is that a more, it sounds like a more efficient method than, um, than cycling up and down uh, one particular plant, just having this backup market? Well, there are actually, and this is pretty complicated, there are actually a couple different kinds of backup markets, so you have to get them clear. The up and down market is regulation market, which is to deal with both up and down fluctuations. And then there are reserve markets that basically deal with the contingency that another plant goes out suddenly and you have to call up electricity very quickly. Great. All right, I want to uh, ask just about some uh, specific elements of your work. You have a, a piece called Reforming Texas Electricity Markets. If you buy the power, why pay for the power plant? What does that mean? Well, that's a piece with Bob Michaels uh, at, at California Fullerton, Cal State Fullerton. And uh, this really gets into the weeds. There's something in, the, in many electricity markets called capacity markets where you get paid not only for producing electricity but for simply having generators um, uh, generators on standby and uh, just having generators in the ground. And this is in addition to all these standby markets that we talked about. And these are called capacity markets. And, and there's a lot of economists who write in favor of them. But to many of us, these are just a waste of money and a payoff to incumbent uh, electricity generators. And so in Texas, in the Texas market, there is no capacity market. But there's an argument there that because of alleged lack of capacity that they need a capacity market. And so what uh, Dr. Michaels and I would do in that paper was try to argue that that didn't make much sense. Oh, that raises an issue I've, I've looked into a little bit um, in terms of this, the, the general trend of, of shutting down coal plants and replacing them with natural gas plants. Now, if, if you leave aside uh, pollution issues, um, to what extent is there a, a false uh, incentive for utilities because they get paid to build new plants? Well, now this this divides it up into regulated markets and and uh, restructured markets. So if you think about regulated markets, a lot of them are in the southeast and the midwest in the upper Midwest now. They basically are paid based on their capital investments. And so this is one of the things that we think caused all these nuclear power cost overruns in the 70s and 80s is that, you know, the more I invest, the more money I make. So, you know, I'm going to put I'm going to have cost overruns in nuclear power plants. On the other hand, in restructured markets, where it's just like every other market, you know, if you want to make a natural gas generator, you can build a natural gas generator in Pennsylvania and then send, sell the gas into the market and you make or lose money based on your investments. So it really depends on where you are. Um, well, so if we take if we take the regulated market, is there a lot of uh, economic efficient, inefficiency in, in terms of uh, just justifying shutting down coal plants? Because it seems like you've got, you know, if, if you have a functioning coal plant, that's a valuable piece of, of capital and it's expensive to build something new. And particularly because natural gas prices historically aren't as stable as coal prices, it seems dubious that this would be uh, a more economic replacement long term. 
Well, you don't shut down coal plants in general. You just don't build new ones and you retrofit the old ones. The, the right to produce in any place is valuable. And so basically when you get the right to produce something, you're very reluctant to give it up. Instead, you just gradually rebuild the power plant. Um, so um, it's kind of a different phenomenon. And that's true in regulated and restructured states, both of them. That's, I find that really interesting. Can you elaborate on that issue of just the right to produce as, as very valuable and, and why? Well, to, to have the right to produce, especially for a coal plant, I have to get a permit from some authority. And generally, the permit will get, uh, will get rolled over. And if I, if I do everything right, I can keep renewing that permit. So keeping an old plant going is re in regulatory terms not very hard. Getting a new plant, especially a new coal plant, can be very difficult. So as a result, if as your as your plants age, you don't shut them down; rather, you gradually refurbish them, and you don't rebuild them one at you know at one part. You're, you're basically constantly upgrading the facility. Um, is this is this phenomenon true of oil refineries? Uh, oil refineries, yes, it's the same kind of thing, although oil refineries are kind of a different thing. But oil refineries in general become more efficient and they get larger over time. And so you've seen a dramatic decrease in the number of oil refineries because basically all the small ones are uneconomic and the larger ones just keep getting bigger. Oh, why, why is that, that the small ones are so uneconomic? Well, basically the technology has changed and so you have economies of scale. And so in refining, you either get bigger or you get out. Uh, now, jumping away from electricity for a minute, you've done some work on fuel economy uh, regulation, and you have some interesting findings in terms of what happens with fuel efficiency laws. What, what does happen with fuel efficiency laws that's counterintuitive? Well, there are many things that are counterintuitive about automobile fuel economy standards. Uh, in particular, um, what happens is if you put people in more fuel-efficient cars, they drive more. And so that reduces your um, fuel savings. It also increases pollution because pollution regulations are based on emissions per mile. Um, in the current set of um, uh, fuel economy standards, they have very ambitious goals, but there are all kinds of loopholes to get around them. So while the car companies now meet these standards, I'm not sure that they're, they cause them to make the cars more fuel efficient. Um, can you explain the, the uh, measured in emissions per mile? Oh, sure, that, uh, you know, cars have to meet certain emission standards, and those emissions are based on the mileage. So, you know, for every mile I drive, I'm allowed to have a certain number of weight of pollutants. So if the regulations cause me to drive more, then I'm going to emit more pollution. Um, you meant, um, Is there anything else that's counterintuitive about uh, fuel economy standards? You mentioned there were several things. Well, it causes a lot of substitutions. It causes the price of larger cars to get high, to get to, to go up because they're not as fuel efficient. But that in turn causes. But remember, these regulations only apply to new cars. So most cars are used cars, and so what you see happen is the price of less fuel efficient used cars go up, and they're they're really far less efficient. And the other problem you have is because used cars become more valuable, they get scrapped at a slower rate. You know, cars and airplanes both can last forever if you want them to. And so it's an economic decision whether or not to scrap a car. And if you're going to affect the new car market, you're also going to scrap scrappage in the old car market. And of course, 20-year-old cars now are a lot more polluting and a lot more, 
less fuel efficient than modern cars. And in a certain sense, you don't want a policy that discourages scrapping and the turnover of the automobile fleet. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Uh, I like that formulation that they can they can last forever uh, if you want them to. I guess well, someday, that- Alex, you and I will be able to go to Cuba and we'll have our choice of antique cars to buy because, uh, as I understand it, basically, there have been no new nice cars in Cuba since 1960, so there are a lot of old Chevrolets on the, on the street there. Of course, you and I aren't allowed to go there, so we couldn't say that from personal experience. <laughs> All right, well, yeah, I'm not sure but, when that trip have, is going to happen. I have Canadian friends, Alex, who've been there, and that's what they tell me. Uh, interesting. Well, last topic uh, I want to cover is, is maybe the, the topic you're best known for, which is uh, the relationship between weather and electricity markets. Now, that's probably not, there's probably not two things that are intuitively connected. So what work do you do with weather and electricity markets? Well, we're trying to figure out, you know, electricity demand, for instance, in Philadelphia area, is Philadelphia is going to be a summer peaking area. And as climate has gotten warmer, but also as society has gotten richer and there's more air conditioning, um, peak demand is now concentrated in the summertime. So when it gets very hot in Philadelphia, 90, 94, 96 degrees, the electricity demand is is very large compared to other times, and so the price becomes very high. And so what you'd be able, like to be able to do is to predict that when that's going to happen. You'd also like to be able to give consumers incentives to reduce their consumption when the price is high. One of the major problems in the electricity system is that everybody pays, most people now pay the flat rate, no matter at the retail level, no matter what the wholesale price of power is. So now, Alex, I understand in California now the, they're distributing smart meters to people's homes. I don't know. Do you have a smart meter in your house? Uh not yet. Um, not, not yet. I do not want one. Well, you don't want one, and there are interesting arguments about it. But what you're trying to do there is give people an incentive to conserve power when the wholesale price of power is high. And that's a problem in the system, although the work I've done indicates it doesn't make much sense for residential consumers. But for larger consumers, they can save money if they can switch their demand out of peak periods and reduce the strain on the electricity system. Yeah, just... Um... Living in a decent-sized house, uh, paying air conditioning bills in the summer, and just looking at the breakdown of that bill and seeing how much the price increases uh, per marginal unit of electricity is very angering. So, uh, well, California, California has an interesting system where uh, the price of electricity is relatively cheap for small users, but as you get larger and larger, you pay more and more. So I think maybe the marginal cost for many residential customers in, in, in California raises perhaps, and you would know this better than I, but I think it raises, rises up to about 26 cents per kilowatt hour. Here in Pennsylvania, I'm paying 9 or 10 cents a kilowatt hour. So at the margin, when you add to your electricity cost in California, it can be very expensive. Although that system uh, generates other peculiarities, and I don't know, Alex, if you've, if you've seen issues about net metering, which is going to cause a lot of problems for the system. Um, it, it sounds familiar, but I, I don't have a clear idea off the top of my head. Well, one of the issues is for people who build solar power is they want to be able to buy electricity at the same cost that they, they want to be able to sell electricity at the same cost that they buy the electricity at. And because well, there's two problems that first of all, they're not, they're, they're not paying 
the system cost, the whole, rather than saying the wholesale price. The other is the is net metering implies they get to use the firm's distribution network for free. It's kind of like if I picked up a couch at your furniture store for $250 and then you paid me uh, $500 to deliver $50 to deliver to my house, so I pay you $300. Now I tell you I have a couch and you should pick it up and pay me $300. So there's a lot of controversy about net metering, but it's really generated one by the solar. Um, the solar subsidies, and two, by the peculiar pricing system in California. All right. Well, I'm going to move away from the topic of California because I can only take so much uh, understanding of, of what's going on here in, in a given chunk of time. Uh, if we look around the world, you mentioned the pretty vast difference between what you pay uh, and what I pay. It might even be above 26 cents. But uh, What's what's the cheapest electricity in the world, and what's the most expensive electricity in the world? Oh, the cheapest electricity in the world? Well, you know, in a lot of places you get electricity for free. It's subsidized by the government. So if you're a farmer in India, you get electricity basically for free. Now, you don't get very high-quality electricity. It doesn't run that many hours of the day. Um, expensive electricity? Um, any island? Any small island is always going to have very expensive electricity. Hawaii has expensive electricity. I don't know if you spend time, Alex, in Los, in Los Angeles. You know, it's only about an eight-hour flight to Tahiti. Do you, do you ever take that trip? Uh, no, I, I have not yet. I see. Well, you know, it's very expensive. Electricity is very expensive on Tahiti. Um, perhaps you'll f focus that in on your, on your travel plan. <laughs> Yeah, it's a good, it's a good, it's a good factor to know. Well, that just raise one more uh, quick question, which is the the economics at the moment of uh, you know getting electricity over a large grid versus getting it from more local sources. Because certainly there's um, idyllic scenarios that people at least have in their mind of well, if I get all my electricity from my own sun or at least my own sun, I mean my own solar panels, or or just much more localized. Uh, generation sources. What are the current economics of that? Well, the current economics aren't very good, and, and it, it's caught, the subsidies cause economic cost to the system. I mean, you know, there's some time, you know, for instance, if storage ever becomes a economically viable, there'll be ways to interact in the marketplace that way. Uh, if diesel or natural gas generators ever become small enough so you could have it in your local community. You could imagine a neighborhood having its own mini generator and put it on its local grid. Uh, you know, it's all very interesting and it calls for a different kind of um, electricity system, but we're not quite there yet. Fascinating. All right. Well, we, we covered uh, a lot today, so we'll wrap up. But before we do that, where can listeners learn more about you and your work? Well, I have a website here at Penn State. We have some other professors who do interesting energy economics. And so I'd encourage uh, people to look at that website and, of course, to listen to your show, Alex. <laughs> Thank you. Well, uh, yeah, we'll encourage them to do both, and we'll for sure uh, encourage uh, – we'll link to the website, I should say – on the show. Uh, Andrew, thanks so much for coming on Power Hour. Uh, great talking to you, Alex. I hope you have a nice sunny day out there in California. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks again to Andrew Cleet for being on the show. Um, he has very, very uh, succinct and precise answers, which 
I think is, is really good in terms of being able to cover uh, a lot of content. So I learned a lot. I hope you learned a lot uh, as well. Now, what I want to focus on at the end of this episode is just letting you know or reminding you that the school year is coming up. Now, a lot of CIP's activities in the past, including some of the big debates with Bill McKibben, Sierra Club, Greenpeace, have taken place at American universities. Now, this year, we are going to take our I Love Fossil Fuels campaign onto campuses, and we need your help, particularly if you are a student. Um, if you're a student and you're interested in doing any sort of campus activism on these topics, we're creating a lot of new materials. We already have some uh, available at fossilfueldebate.com, and you can. It should be able to. The goal is to allow you to fairly easily make a big difference on your campus by giving you very, very effective materials that don't require a huge amount of time and resources uh, to uh, deploy. And it's particularly important this year because there's what you've probably heard of, the divestment movement, so this idea that universities should publicly shame fossil fuel companies by publicly um, selling all of their fossil fuel stocks. Now this, this campaign led by Bill McKibben, it's, this is a real opportunity for us to uh, to make a difference and to be heard uh, when this movement, when this issue is in an early stage. Once it gets momentum, if it gets momentum, it's going to be a steamroller. But here's a stage at which we can say, look, Americans should not be divesting from fossil fuels. If anything, at least morally, we should be investing because these companies uh, are doing you know, incredibly good things and they're being treated incredibly unjustly by you know, the so-called environmentalist movement, really the anti-development and ultimately anti-technology uh, movement. So this year, it's already starting to get a lot of coverage. This is going to be a banner year on campus. I think at CIP, we're in a really good position to do a lot. Uh, so please contact me. Um, uh, I should say contact us, actually. For this one, uh, I'll send you to Adam Edmondson, um, you know, who's uh, one of the top guys at CIP. So email adam at industrialprogress.net and just in the subject line say, I love fossil fuels campus, and let us know that you're interested. Uh, you know, And also, particularly if you're interested in hosting a debate, uh, let us know about that. And you know, even if you don't have the resources to do it, but if, if you have time and energy, we might be able to get help for that. So definitely, I want to see some emails coming our way. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail for me, you can always contact me at alex at industrialprogress.net. Next week, we'll be back with another great topic, another great guest. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.